Before we start, I want to thank our sponsor, Quiet Light Brokerage. Quiet Light's team of advisors helps entrepreneurs like you buy and sell online businesses for six, seven, or eight figures. They closed over $75 million of deals last year alone, and they've closed hundreds of millions of dollars since they started in 2007. Want to know how much your business is worth? Visit quietlightbrokerage.com slash exit strategy to find out. The site will teach you how to determine what impacts your valuation and how to optimize your valuation through ad backs and accounting methods. Whether you're aiming for an exit or want to run your business for years to come, QuietLight can help you. Ready to learn more? Visit quietlightbrokerage.com slash exit strategy to get started. All right, on to today's episode. Okay, we're here on the fifth episode of the podcast with Nick Sharma. Um, Nick and I have been friends for about a year. Nick, I'm going to tell everyone a little bit about your background. Cool. You ran acquisition at Hintwater. Um, you've been an investor in a bunch of direct-to-consumer businesses, including Judy, including House, which is an alcohol company, and some other ones that I was looking at on your LinkedIn profile yesterday. Will you tell people a little bit about like the companies that you've invested in? Yeah. Let's see. Judy, House, uh, Black Wolf Nation, Brightland. They're honestly mostly just D2C companies that I'm like a fan of first, and then fan enough to want to be involved in a deeper level. Yeah. Are you involved in all of them on a deeper level or are you involved in all of them in like... um... Yeah, I would say I definitely work on stuff like every week for each portfolio company. Like I help them out in some way every week for sure. Okay, great. Yeah. What's something that you did for like Judy this week? For Judy, well, today actually pretty happy. I just finished a domain migration. So I ended up getting judy.co as a domain. And um, I just said it like literally 10 minutes ago as like our new primary domain. So that was exciting. Oh, that's awesome. How much did you buy judy.co? Like you had to buy it off somebody? Or yeah, it was, it, it was a five figure domain. <laughs> so I'm just all about like, especially if it's a four letter brand. Sure. I mean, you did the same thing with native. And then with Judy, I'm trying to do it as much as I can. You know, Judy's a little harder because it's a person's name. Yeah. The hard part is that you have to like sometimes steal the like Instagram handle from a squatter. Yeah. Um, like we I remember like, uh, and that's like Andy. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know that was happening. I just reached out to our Facebook folks and I was like, Hey, could we get the native, like, you know, Instagram handle? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, here you go. And I'm like, okay, great. That <laughs> was a lot easier than I expected. Yeah. Uh, we actually never tried. Do you think domain names are important? We, like, I think Instagram handle is really important. I yeah. think Twitter handle is really important. And we never did that well with Twitter. But do you think domain name is? Cause like so much of the traffic that is driving to your site now yeah. is like, being searched for on Google or being found on totally, social and yeah. not necessarily like people putting in google.com. Yeah, I think it's definitely important to some extent. Like you want a good domain. I think where some brands get carried away is when they try and put a verb in front of their brand and then it gets too long. Yeah. It's yeah. usually like food and bev or like fitness related things. But um, yeah, I mean, I like things that are just nice, short and clean. Yeah. So I was really proud to get judy.co. But then like other things, like for Brightland, I'm working on a landing page and for house, like things like connecting them with PostScript and Alex, getting them set up there. But yeah, it's like usually anywhere I try to be proactive about like, oh, if I see them trying to do something or do something, then I just try to think like, what's something easy I can do to help them out? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. When it comes to like brand names, before Native launched, uh, I was like, okay, I want to start this deodorant business. What's a good brand name for it? And sort of went through a bunch of ideas. And I was like, okay, I want something like that has a nod towards natural, but it isn't like called natural and isn't called something like deodorant club or deodorant company because like I want to be able to sell other products. And when we came up with the term native, I remember a bunch of people were like, this is a bad name, doesn't mean anything. And a lot of Native Americans are going to get upset. Yeah. 
Native Americans getting upset happened. A ton of people got <laughs> upset the first about thing? it. But we never tried to buy like native.com. Yeah. But we did have a huge issue with a trademark. I think I've mentioned this to mm-hmm. you before, where we tried to use the native trademark and somebody else owned yeah. it. And it became really difficult to like sort of – we had to acquire that trademark. And we bought the trademark like five days before we ended up selling the business to Procter & Gamble. That's like, that insane. Issue we had wow. Before we sold the business. Wow. Wow. That's insane. And when we were chatting with other people, other people would be like, we're not going to give you an offer for your business until you own your trademark. Yeah. And so I really think one of like P&G's advantages was they were like, look, we're ready to move forward in the acquisition process with the contingency that you buy the mark mm. before we close. But other people were like, we're not even ready to move forward. Did they charge you like an arm and a leg for that? Yeah, they did. It was high six-figure price. Well, so what's crazy is like comparing that to a domain, like you had to get that because that's the only way that your deal yeah. would have gone through. Whereas a domain, you don't necessarily need it. But just as you were saying that, this thing popped in my head that Soylent was, I think it was like Drink Soylent. And they bought Soylent.com off this dude who used it to like, he was into some weird shit and he would promote some stuff on that site. But they bought the domain off of him for like 100K. Wow. Insane. I mean, I think they've like raised $80 million. So I feel like if you've raised $80 million, you don't know what (laughs) $100,000 is anymore. Yeah, that is crazy. We never tried to buy native.com and our domain name was uh, nativecos.com. Yeah. And people would be like, what is the COS? Is it cosmetics? Is it companies? Yeah. What is it? And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. It was the only thing available. And so like, people would be like, what is the name of this company? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, for the longest time on Twitter, I never found native because it's a native underscore COS. It's so bad. Yeah. We tried to get Twitter to do what we had Instagram yeah. do or Facebook do, which is give us the Well, I told you the guy URL. who had the Instagram also has the Twitter. He's down to sell it. Oh, does he yeah. really? Okay. Well, I'm glad that he like got to keep one yeah. of them. <laughs> All right. We'd love to talk about like what's going on in like the like not just the businesses that you're invested in. I know you've said like Judy is sort of crushing it, great time to launch, um, beautiful branding. Mm-hmm. Actually, can we talk a little bit more about Judy? Yeah. Judy sells like a disaster kit for your house. Correct. Which is like, I mean, it's good timing because people are now staying at home and realize that disasters may happen. Who are like other people that are involved in the Judy business? Because you've told me about this. I sort of understand it, but I don't really understand all the relationships. Yeah. So Judy is interesting because of two things. One, it's like a really sound business. The product is basically a, a very functional product and it's something that like provides immediate value to the consumer. So it's a very functional and necessary product, which we love as um, immigrants. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Like, I want a disaster kit for my exactly. parents, probably one for myself as well. So you don't need to sell me on the business any longer. Yeah. I'm 100%. So the other reason it's really interesting is because of the team that's involved. So the core team was probably five people. Um, it was myself. It was our ops person, who's just a G with ops, um, a head of customer service. And then the two founders, um, Josh Udashkin, who's the former founder of Raiden, and then Simon Huck, who is the founder of Command PR or Command Entertainment Group. But he also happens to be a celebrity of his own, being so closely friends with Kim Kardashian. And he also knows like the A-list world, like the back of his hand. So yeah. it made it really interesting for launch because on launch day, I was learning all about A-list celebrities through Judy. There was like, yeah, every celebrity is posted to Judy from Chrissy Teigen to Martha Stewart to Kim Kardashian to... 
literally everybody. Is that because Steve Huck, I guess, sort of got all these people to post about it? How did that sort of happen? Yeah, honestly, Simon, I think just has like, he's a very loved guy in the industry and in, in his network. And I think when people saw that he was launching something that, you know, he developed this brand because he saw that so many of his own family members were affected by disasters. And so I think when they saw that he was basically launching this brand and it was a real thing, they all just wanted to support. It's weird because none of the the influencer posts have ever felt like ads. None of them are like, go buy this now. It's like, it's all congratulating Simon or just talking about how handy their Judy kits are. Yeah. Well, that's great. Trying to get that organic like influencer reach is really, really difficult to get down. Yeah. Yeah. They did a really good job. And like Josh... who's the other founder is the president of Ramoa. So he's just a beast of an operator. Yeah. And so making sure like, especially on things like logistics and supply chain, sourcing, um, marketing, like he's a genius. Is he related to like the founder of LVMH? I thought the president of Ramoa was like the guy's son or something like Bernard. Oh, whatever his son. No, I don't think he's related to them. I have heard that name come up, but maybe Josh replaced him or he like took a different role in the company. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Let's move on to like what's going on in the direct-to-consumer industry now because I feel like you're in touch with a ton of different brands and there is certainly like a perfect storm brewing right now. Mm-hmm. I think there was all of a sudden people were worried about profitability and not just like top-line growth. And so like when Brandless sort of shut down its operations, when Outdoor Voices had whatever issues that it recently had, uh, people realized that bottom line really mattered. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the stock market is collapsing. And so investors are going to be a lot more cautious when it comes to writing checks. And then finally, no one's going outside because you know COVID is causing the stock market to collapse. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden the pair of Nike shoes that you would ordinarily wear when you were running outside don't really seem necessary anymore. Right. Do you think that the bottom line mattering or COVID is sort of having a larger impact or is it just impossible to tell right now? It is kind of impossible to tell because we're kind of in this like sheltered or hibernation stage right now where we haven't like fully accepted that, okay, this is the reality and figured out the adjustments around that. We're all kind of in this like, I'm sure you saw that New York Times article around how people are just like turning to junk food. I know just from portfolio companies and chatting around that like cookware is doing really well. Um, Beauty's type of stuff yeah. isn't doing as well. Like anything really related to going out, but anything that promotes happiness or calmness or wellness while you're staying in has just been crushing. Everything from like fitness yeah. fitness gear and jump ropes and, and bands all the way to uh, adaptogen drinks are crushing. Cookware, I said, is doing well. It's kind of weird though, but it will be interesting to see when all this stuff does settle down, how will people adjust and what will people start to realize as their priorities? You know, I don't think people are going to be rushing to spend $100 to get, you know, face wash customized to their zip code anymore. Yeah. The perspective of money will definitely change. Yeah, it's crazy how fast that happens. You know, it took like 10 years for people to feel really bullish and their wallets to feel fat and them to feel like, hey, I want to spend money uh, making myself happy Yeah. to all of a sudden being like, this seems like a crazy luxury to have a customized face wash. Yeah, right. That's literally a way, right? It's like you used to have like a $25 Target um, suitcase or you have like a $5,000 Saks Fifth Avenue set. And then yeah. Away kind of yeah. came in and found that like high earners but not rich type of playground henry the henry playground yeah but they just had to let go of like 60 percent of their staff 
the worst part is all the people who get yeah. affected who just don't know how they're going to pay rent in two months. Yeah. Let's take a step back. I mean, COVID is obviously a complete catastrophe yeah. for the country and like just heartbreaking. I think a couple of days ago, I saw that there were nearly 2000 deaths in the United States yeah. on a single day. And I was like, this is two thirds of a 9-11 on a single day. And it's going to happen again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's really heartbreaking. You were talking about some businesses that are doing well just by virtue of the fact that people have to stay in cookware companies, fitness bands. And you're right. Like I've tried to order fitness products mm-hmm. and the wait is like a month now. Yeah. I waited three weeks to get a jump rope. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Do you think that that acceleration is permanent? For instance, if you haven't ordered from Instacart before and now you do, do you get off of Instacart? Are people going to be like, yeah, I want a tonal or a mirror and I want to keep this? Like tonals and mirrors are thousands of dollars. Mm. And they have $50 a month like subscription fees or something to that effect. They're incredibly expensive. But is this now the new reality? Is Equinox sort of like in trouble or six months from now are these direct-to-consumer businesses back to where they were and Equinox is back to what it was? Well, I think there's two parts to that. One is will people trust going out and going into a public gym again? Like that to me is mind-boggling. But the second part (laughs) is like how much do they value getting that like Peloton bike or SoulCycle bike for their house and whether or not they will. I mean, they've definitely seen sales just jump and for them, their whole game is they get a product in your house, then they kind of have you with the subscription for quite some time. Yeah. Away Travel had to lay off a bunch of their staff. Everlane has as well. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of companies have just as a result of the fact that sales are down. Yeah. You can't. It's a terrible thing to have to do. But at the same time, if the entire business goes bankrupt, there's nobody that can work there. Right. right? And so it's a hard decision, but probably the right decision. Sure. What happens to these businesses in the future? Do they have down rounds? Do they go out of business ultimately? Do they, like what happens to away? I guess in six months or a year, it was probably like the darling of the DTC community, right? Mm-hmm. Like a huge valuation, two female entrepreneurs who were, I thought, doing a fantastic job. Like really admired both of them. And I know, like you know, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the press related to Steph Corey and stuff later on. What happens to this a company that was doing everything right for so long? Investing in a brand, you go to the airport and a ton of people are carrying their away bags. Mm -hmm. What happens to that brand a year from now? Yeah, it's tough to say. Like the two two immediate things that come to mind is one is private equity. And then the other is it just gets acquired by, you know, one of the bigger luggage companies and they either like acquire it and roll in capabilities or they basically just keep the brand going, but support the P&L much better. Yeah. It's certainly tough to say. I imagine there's going to be like down rounds for a bunch of these businesses. Mm-hmm. Aside from the founders who I you know, have a lot of empathy for because they built an amazing business and like something terrible happened mm-hmm. that was completely outside their control and hurt their business. Also, a lot of empathy for those employees that work there and have bought into that stock or exercised their options. And now all of a sudden, they're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And it's not just their way, right? It's at Airbnb totally. and a ton of other companies that sort of were headed in the right trajectory and then all of a sudden are no longer going to do that. Yeah. Do you think there's opportunities to buy distressed direct-to-consumer businesses? So like away travel is obviously going to be a super expensive business, but like how do people buy and sell these distressed businesses? To be honest, I'm not 100% sure. I've definitely been doing a little more research just because I've gotten curious recently about it. Yeah. but I figured you had. Yeah. And I've been talking to like Mike, for example, who's our friend at Greylock. But yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to learn about it as well. It's like a completely new world for me. I never thought that 
that all this would happen. And so I've never yeah. had to learn it before. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit about like, not just COVID, but like, let's talk a little bit about what happened at Outdoor Voices and the press that was related to away travel. Mm. I've seen a lot of like articles sort of saying, are there hit jobs going on on female against female entrepreneurs? Yeah. I have no idea what the answer is to that. Like at Native, we barely got any press when we were independent. I've never been a woman. So I have no <laughs> idea as to whether people are doing that. Certainly seems like something is happening. Like there are a lot of terrible male run businesses that don't seem to be getting yeah. as much <laughs> oh, press. Totally. I'm not sure why that's the case. I think Outdoor Voices and Steph Corey are very different businesses. Yeah. Like the away travel, certainly there were things that like Steph said that weren't great. If you look at the Slack history I had at Native, you know, people would put me in prison. <laughs> I was like saying terrible things. Like if people fucked up, I was like, how could you possibly fuck up like this, you motherfucker? <laughs> uh, you know, like it's a very intense process. Yeah. All of your energy is being put on something yeah. so tough. Yeah. What did you think of the away travel one? I um, thought it was really unfair. I was like, oh, she called uh, like some third party logistics company brain dead. And I was like, they probably are. The brain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that is the nicest term I could think of yeah, a thir- for a third party. hundred percent. I have empathy on both sides. I think as an employee, if you're not used to that kind of environment of like the hyper growth startup, a lot of the really successful brands or even companies that sell products, they have a very intense marketing or customer success organization. And like, that's why they're so good is because they're so critical about their marketing, their sales and their onboarding. So I think some people are definitely like not made for that. I also think you probably don't want to be yelling at employees on public channels or private channels. But again, I mean, that's up to you as like a founder. If you want to <laughs> if you do that, like that's up to you. I've definitely done it before. Yeah. So like you said, if you're a founder and like, I always try and have empathy for the other person. So if I was your employee and you were like, how the fuck could you fuck this up? I'm not going to get mad thinking, oh, Moise is mad at me. I'm thinking he's right. He has to deal with like this company that's trying to acquire him. And he's probably dealing with 15 other things me not doing my job, put something else on his plate. So like, that's how I would view it. And that's how I have viewed it when I was at the last couple companies I was at. So all that said, I mean, those messages were like nothing that I've never gotten before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There were nothing I've never sent before. Yeah. In fact, they they were like tame. Yeah. I was like Joe Exotic when I was running Native and like everyone (laughs) else was Carol Baskin. Yeah. I think like, you know, if you're going to do it, you own it. You know, you also obviously make sure that your employees are not pissed off that they're working for you. Like, sure. there's good times and bad times, and I think that's natural. But, I mean, yeah. I think the thing on the press, too, is like female-founded companies are just numbers-wise could be considered anomalies. And so I think because of that, the ones that – like, it started way earlier when it was the ones that go through the Red Antlers or the Gin Lanes and they come out. There's like a press tour. It's a very normal thing where like brands launch and there's a whole press tour between everybody's goal is to get into the New York Times with a quote so they can throw that on their site. That said, I think the press, good or bad, will follow you throughout because people are just intrigued by the story. And the hook is so much different than what people are normally used to, I guess. That would be my like really zoomed out, non-politically correct, just like off the cuff thinking. Yeah. 
I guess two things about that. One is the other thing I thought about from like the way conversations that got leaked was, you know, they have a real commitment to customer service that's um, really incredible. Yeah. You know, when they were late sending packages, stuff's like, okay, how about we send this person 10 suitcases or 100 suitcases to make up for it? Mm-hmm. That's what we want from customer service with direct-to-consumer businesses, totally. companies that have a ton of empathy and that do the right thing when, when something wrong happens. Yeah. And so I really admired that. The other thing from a press perspective, like at Native, I was trying to court the press early on and all like all product press. Like I wanted to talk about Native deodorant and not the success of the business. And what happened was that we couldn't get anybody to like write about us. One day, like randomly, we had created a rosé deodorant and we like accidentally launched it June 21st. It wasn't even our goal. Mm-hmm. We didn't realize that it was the first day of summer, although it was the oh, first wow. day of summer. And so we launched it. And all of a sudden, all of these press institutions picked up the product, yeah. which we never thought would happen. Yeah. We were on Good Morning America, The Today Show, and like in Vogue, in Refinery29, probably like 30 or 50 publications in the course of 24 hours. Incredible. And I was like, great. We've like, this is it. You know, we're going to get all. And in reality, like I tracked our revenue from that day. All of those publications got us an extra $25,000 in revenue. Mm -hmm. And on that day, Facebook got us like $50,000 in revenue. Mm -hmm. We were like a mini viral sensation. Certainly like nobody remembers it. Right. (laughs) You know, other viral sensations. But it was in a lot of publications and we got $25,000 in sales on that day. And I was like, what is the, why are people courting press like this? Yeah. Well, I think it's like, it serves both parties because like you get pickup and it's good exposure. And then for... A lot of these outlets, they just plug into your affiliate platform. And if they can be contextually relevant for what consumers are thinking, which is, you know, jumping in yeah. these first day of summer articles and listicles, then they're going to try and make revenue off of it. It's actually a good That's strategy for when you try and launch stuff. If you can be super contextually relevant to as many people as possible, which everybody can enjoy the first day of summer, then you just increase your chances of getting picked up and things like that. Did it happen with Judy? Look, give me another example because I, I have a tough time yeah. completely understanding. With Judy, like not speaking as a member of Judy, but more as like an outsider, when Judy launched, like every Kardashian was posting about their Judy kit and then Chrissy Teigen had posted it as well. And all of a sudden there was an angle of like the Kardashians are promoting this emergency kit. What is it? And so that became a press angle. There was another People Magazine article which did really well. That was something around like what this new emergency kit, the Kardashians and Chrissy Teigen are promoting. And so it's almost just like making sparks on one end and the fire happens on the other. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That one's a little bit different than like the Rose, but similar in the sense that there are ways to plan things like press. A lot of people tend to think that you just cold email reporters asking to talk about your product and then they'll magically like pick it up one day. But the real work comes in like figuring out the reason for them to write about it or creating that angle. Yeah. As a publication, like they're incentivized by ad revenue. You make ad revenue by more page views. You get more page views by having a good angle. It's like a weird loop. You can't just be like, here's this product, please write about it. You have to say, here's why I think it's interesting to the readers that you have. Right. I remember at my first e-commerce business, I'd constantly like look for people who had written about something else in the space Mm -hmm. and then sort of be like, hey, here's something that you should talk about. So it was a business that sold alcohol online. This TechCrunch reporter wrote about a distillery in New York City for some reason. And I was like, well, that's not very TechCrunchy, but if you're willing to write about that, maybe you're willing to write about us because we know that distillery and we're the number one seller of their products. And so he's like, okay, great. Let me write about you guys. 
So he wrote about us and then like Bloomberg picked us up and so did like CNBC or something. Like it was just random, the, like, the kind of like flywheel effect that one single publication ha can have. Yeah. And so you, you have to be persistent, but you're right. Those angles are really important. Yeah. If you can nail one of those anchors as like, whether it's an exclusive or they pick it up first, then the others will definitely make a move to try and cover it just because if it's coming from like yeah. a TechCrunch or a Bloomberg, then they probably assume people are going to be searching for it. Yeah. Did you guys hire a PR agent already at Judy? How are you guys doing that? Do you guys not need one because you guys have all these influencers? No, they use an agency. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. When we were like running native, I tried to get an agency and we ultimately settled on one. But like before that, I called up like the, the guys that are sort of doing a lot of direct to consumer, uh, like direct to consumer PR work in New York. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, we charge $25,000 a month plus 1% <laughs> yeah. equity. And oh, I was wow. Like, are you fucking crazy? That's crazy. I've never seen the equity I don't understand ask. where this number came from. Yeah. It was a 1% equity ask. And I was like, you don't know anything about my business and you want 1% of it? Yeah. I might be all birds and you could be asking for 1% of it. Or I could be a brand that does, you know, $10,000 a year and you want one. Like those are two completely different <laughs> yeah. asks, right? Like one is worth more than $10 million yeah. and the other is probably worth a dollar. Right. So how could you just ask for 1% equity without knowing anything That's else insane. about my business? Have you seen people like do that kind of stuff? Oh, totally. Some branding agencies do it and still do it. I haven't seen it from PR. I know there's a couple firms in New York that'll do like growth marketing and they'll also take some equity. But yeah, I don't know. I think that concept's kind of weird to like, it's almost like exchanging currency. And I think your currencies yeah. just have to be same. Yeah, that's why we use cash. Yeah, you shouldn't fuck with changing equity for services and it just gets really messy. Also, I was talking with somebody and he was saying that when you get to like, let's say, you know, you're early and you're like a native, for example, yeah, you go off, if you didn't get acquired and you, you started raising like round C and D, like those investors start looking at your cap table thinking, why the fuck does this branding agency have 2% of the company? Like just knock them off. And so they'll just end up getting screwed later. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize that people would do that. I mean, from like a branding agency perspective, I'm a little bit more amenable to it because presumably your business is just starting when you work mm -hmm. with that branding agency. And so you're both at, like, you know, it's worth nothing and you don't, you might not have a ton of cash. Sure. I was just surprised. I was like, that point native was probably doing, you know, $2 million, $3 million a month. And this person's like, we want 1% of your company. And I was like, <laughs> this company could be doing $3 million a month or it could be doing 30000 a month. Yeah. You don't know. And you're still asking for the yeah. same amount. Just made no sense right. to me. That's insane. Like, you know, I wish that somebody had put together like a Yelp of vendors that e-commerce Yeah, I know. Used. That's one of the things I get asked the most is like, what's a great paid media agency? And really where people go wrong is one, they just read stuff on the internet. Agencies are all marketing themselves. So they'll all call themselves the best. Sure. So one mistake is going by that. The second mistake is thinking, oh, this agency looks sick. I want to work with them. And I made that mistake at Hint where I thought an agency, which is a sick brand agency, they did good work. But the problem was you realize that like certain agencies are built for businesses at different stages. And so we were too small for that agency to really care. Yeah. But now I've kind of narrowed it down to like, if you're under 200K, there's a different person. If you're between like 300 to, I don't know, a million, two million, it's a different stage. And like two million plus is a different stage. But, and same goes for like PR and everything. Yeah. Email, PR, like all your services, affiliate too. They're all different at different stages.
Yeah, you don't want to be like the smallest fish in a ginormous pond. Not like, at you don't all. want to work with an email agency that is also working with like Nike. Exactly. And- because you're never their priority. Yeah, exactly. At Native, what happened is our first like six months of the business, we lost our contract. Man- like the person who was making our product yeah. was like, I'm going to stop making this. And so we had to find another company. And like the other company that we were working with was like this, I think you know them yep. at this point, this 800, they were working out of an 800 square foot yeah, facility yeah. at the time or something tiny. It was perfect for us because when we called them up, we're like, hey, we want to order a thousand units a week. And they're like, that's fine. That's like you know, <laughs> yeah. a very reasonable request for us. Yeah. Other people we spoke to, they're like, you need to order a hundred thousand units out of the gate. And I was like, we can't even afford that. Mm-hmm. So this is a non-starter. Can you share what your cogs were? When we launched the business at first, it was $5.50 to make a stick of native deodorant. And you were selling it for 10? Like in July of 2015. And we were selling it for 12. 12. Yeah. And you were profitable with Facebook? We were profitable with Facebook. Nice. It's crazy. That's insane. <laughs> like in 2015, our CAC was like $2. In 2016, it was $4. Yeah. At the end of 2016, we were doing a million dollars a month. So there was a ton of EBITDA that the business was generating. The COGS went down a ton. So it went from like 550 to that, that original manufacturer. We switched and it became like 320. Mm-hmm. And every time we sort of grew, they brought the cost down. We went from like making a thousand units of deodorant a week at the end of 2015 or at the beginning of 2016 by the you know middle of 2017 we were making 21,000 units a day and Damn. so we had just increased sales by like you know i don't know 20 times 5 like you know 100x basically and so our cost came down to below $2 like substantially below $2 yeah what was amazing is we found a manufacturer that was really able to grow with us they moved from like this 800 square foot facility to a 20,000 square foot facility to now a 40,000 square foot facility Mm -hmm. rarely do you find service providers that grow with you usually you go to a service provider and you outgrow them and they don't make the infrastructure changes that they need and then you got to go find somebody new totally totally did you ever consider Especially when you were doing, let's say, 5,000 deodorants a day, did you ever consider like, why don't I just buy the facility to do it and buy the raw ingredients? Yeah, uh, certainly did. Uh, Not too seriously, though. You know, we were like the business was growing exponentially. You could work 80 hours a week just on the business without Mm -hmm. touching a single piece of the back end. Got it. And so that became really difficult. Uh, So for you, it was just like, it was also peace of mind that it was like being taken care of. Yeah, yeah, and the simplicity. Right. And when we sold the business, there were eight employees. At the manufacturing facility, I think there were 140. And at the shipment facility, there were like another 100 people. Damn. There were eight employees, and we had created something like 250 jobs. Right. But like, I only had to manage eight employees. And I think one of the things I realized working at Native was one of my weaknesses is uh, like uh, managing employees. It's something that I'm trying to work on mm-hmm. and like giving them structure and goals and communicating with them well. Yeah. Like, I can barely do that with eight people sitting here. If there were 250, I'd put a bullet in my head. (laughs) They would put a bullet in me, actually. Yeah, that's fair. And the person who was making it was just fantastic at it. Like, had very few problems. She worked really hard to make them uh, well. And so that was really, it gave me a lot of peace of mind. That's awesome. You talked about PostScript, which I think is fantastic when it comes to text messaging. Mm-hmm. It's like the Clavio for text messaging. I'm not sure if you've ever dealt with like Shipmunk. They're based in like Miami. Yeah. They do their fantastic 3PL. Introduced me to them. They're like uh, the only 3PL I've ever met that is run by a young person that's in the 21st century. Yeah. Like they have really good tech. Yep. What are some of the other agencies that you recommend to people or some of the other companies that you recommend to people? So like most media buying, I recommend Metric Digital. They're just like their bread and butter is, is DTC brands, especially if you have like a retail presence. They're really good at that. Let's see. Texting, SMS, email, probably Clavio. If you're an influencer for texting, use community. Is that what you use? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Landing pages, build them on Netlify. 
WooCommerce, use Shopify. You'd rather use WooCommerce. I'm not a Shopify fan. Yeah. Yeah, which is crazy because like WooCommerce is... When I used to use it, I was like, I'm so embarrassed telling people that I use it. And now having used Shopify, I'm like, you idiots. You guys are the... Like now I'm embarrassed with Shopify. Yeah. Shopify is great, but it offers... You know, our conversion rate went down by like a material amount once we switched from Woo to Shopify. Yeah. And it was because like Shopify's checkout page. I thought that like Shopify would be better than it is. Like it. I thought Shopify would like uh, would have all of these network effects, yeah. and it really doesn't have those. Its checkout page is terrible. Like it's a multi-step checkout page. The coupon code box doesn't appear on the cart right. page like it does for most other businesses at this point. It's only on the checkout page. You can't control the server. Like you know, at Native, I actually bought a bunch of servers. Like we didn't use AWS for a long time. I actually bought some servers and put them up in like, you know, server farms and <laughs> our site was blazing fast. Yeah. And at Shopify, you can't do that. Right. We used our subscription portal, which was which was a lot cheaper than Recharge, which is what shop which is what native uses today. Like Signet like it was free and actually. How does Recharge charge you? Uh they charge a percentage of your subscription sales. What a beautiful business. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, you know, when we went from paying zero to thousands of dollars a month. Yeah. yeah, it was crazy. Like, my next business will be on WooCommerce again. And next time, I will not have any shame <laughs> no, whatsoever. No Shopify app. Bitches, I'm on WooCommerce. Someone asked Margaret Thatcher, like, how can you have the position that you have when there's 80 people that disagree with you? Like, how does that make yeah. you feel? She's like, I feel bad for the 80 people. Yeah. Because I'm right and they're wrong. Yeah. That's now how I feel yeah. about WooCommerce and Shopify. Yeah. Epic. Uh, the, the hardest part was just like the developer community. It still needed some work. Like there should have been more developers for WooCommerce. That's my biggest tough thing is finding really good developers on Shopify. Like I have one who I just have on retainer for myself. Like just for myself, I have yeah. a Shopify developer who's on That's my funny. payroll and anything I need done, I can hit him up. And um, it's so necessary because a lot of times too, like Shopify – Agencies that are on retainers for some of these brands, they're also sometimes not the best developers. And then, you know, you can't necessarily rely on just internal developer teams either. For me, I like having my own set of tools. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially ones that you understand. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's really hard. Like, you know, you're working on a bunch of different businesses at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to say, okay, these guys use Unbounce. This guy uses something else. This this company uses a third party for a landing page. And now you're like, I have to like learn all these Mm -hmm. systems in order to be helpful. Yeah. It is really difficult to do all that. Yeah. Okay. What are other industries like, you know, direct, you know, when we launched native deodorant, when I launched native, I was thinking about doing native or another mattress company. Ooh. And I'm not entirely sure that like, I think the mattress company could have been even better. Like it seems like everyone who makes a mattress company has hundreds of millions of dollars. In sales. <laughs> yeah. It is an insane industry, but hindsight is 2020. And like, no one was really doing deodorant at the time. And yeah. today there's like 5,000 companies. Yeah. Doing everyone's. They're not annoying. I'm just like, look, this is a $3 billion a year industry. Mm-hmm. The two biggest players, Unilever and Procter & Gamble, have made acquisitions in the space. We're digitally savvy. We have a huge first mover advantage. We have a good price point and a good brand. Where do you like, how much of a business are you looking to acquire? If you're looking to build a $10 million a year business, I get it. If you're looking to build a $200 million a year business, that's 7% of the market. That's going to be really difficult to mm-hmm. do. What are other industries that are untapped today? When Quip came out, I was like, yeah. wow, this is great. You guys are doing a great job with brand. No one's touching electric toothbrush. Great industry to be in. What are other businesses that like need revolution? Like some are hard. So for instance, I think like diapers is a great business. Yeah. It's really hard because 
To make diapers is really expensive. You need a lot of inventory. You need a lot of different sizes. And there's very few companies that can private label diapers. You mm -hmm. need like a, a very expensive paper machine in order to make a diaper. Yeah. To be honest, I'm not 100% sure what like the most ripe would be. Just from observations, though, I think pet is one that like hasn't really been done from a product side. Um, there's a lot of pet food brands that are getting out there, but not necessarily product-wise. I think there's a lot on the side of convenience and accessibility. Even some of these brands that have come out with stuff, just making things even simpler. So I think that's one area. I don't know. The other day I was thinking of direct-to-consumer sauces. There's no sauce company. There's no like DTC Buffalo sauce. Somebody told me I should start that. There's no DTC <laughs> Buffalo sauce. <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah, that would be interesting. Have you heard of Sir Kensington's? I have, yeah. Their stuff is good. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the closest to that. Yeah. What are some direct-to-consumer brands that you really admire right now? Dude Wipes is one of my favorite. Dude Wipes is one of my favorite because I think they have like some of just the funniest content. Dude Wipes is like a butt wipe. It's like the one wipe Charlie from Dollar Shave Club. Yeah. Okay. They were on Shark Tank years ago and they're really good operators. And so because they're really good operators, all they've done is just build brand in like the coolest ways possible. So like their emails yeah. are just the best. Other brands I admire. Uh, how rare is it for you to like look forward to an email from a direct-to-consumer company? Oh, like, so all rare. The emails that people so like, rare. My promotions tab, I'm just like, I don't want to look at any yeah, of Yeah, highlight all and hit archive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I say report spam. Yeah, yeah. I'll usually look through and see if there's any like cool new templates or cool things that people yeah. are doing with their audience. But aside from like I signed up for Quibi, I've been yeah. checking out some of their emails, but nothing's really that great. Yeah. But honestly, lately, it's just been full of sales. Everybody's just trying to liquidate. Yeah. So I'm sorry, but I interrupted you because I think you had a couple other brands that you said you were going to admire that you oh, admired. Yeah. A couple other brands. You know, I think what House is doing is pretty awesome because yeah. all their manufacturing is done literally on their farm and they have all the bottles as like inventory to fill. And Helena is just a great brand marketer. And so. She's really yeah. good at just pivoting and making things pop, which is insane. So that one's really exciting for me to watch and also learn from. And then I usually have like a couple faves I like on the brand side and then a couple faves on the performance side. Not necessarily they're yeah. like that good at brand, great. but they yeah, just yeah, crush sure. with performance. They have great landing pages, great ads. The native one is one of my favorites. Just the homepage or the landing page, the cart, the, all the upsells, the payment token holds. All the yeah, yeah the, the upsells, you know, the upsells were crazy. We have a post-purchase upsell where we sell like a travel size deodorant, which we couldn't sell otherwise, right? It sells for $3 and it's free shipping. So we couldn't sell you that. And like, we would lose so much money if we sold you that individually. And, you know, we sell hundreds of thousands of those mini size deodorants every month. And yeah. they're very profitable as well. Like often our EBITDA was, you know, like, um, at Costco, your mem like their EBITDA is basically just their membership fees. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, our EBITDA is almost all like you know, mini sized <laughs> deodorants that we're selling because there's so much money. Yeah, that's awesome. I usually have like a small tab of brands. I just keep looking at their stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah likewise. You know, I talked to the guy who founded Hymns and Hers for this podcast mm -hmm. about a week Andrew. ago. Yeah, Andrew. And he's like, when we launched the business, we separated our marketing budget and we got our board of directors to sort of say, okay, um, we're going to spend X percentage of our marketing budget on performance and Y percent on brand. 
like right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that uh, split and I thought was? that was really interesting. Or did he mention the no, split? It was, no, he said the majority was still performance. Yeah. And he's like, you know, we do brand stuff like where we buy um, coasters at bars. Yeah. Honestly, so my favorite thing about hymns is Andrew is just a genius with, I call it like finding that new quote unquote inventory, you know, like above yeah. urinals, the coasters, Bumble yeah. used to do coffee sleeves. I love seeing brands do stuff like that. It's great. That to me is just like so creative. Yeah. And like how many guys are at bars on Friday night and yeah. all of a sudden like you can, you might be able to have a conversation about it because it's on your coaster and it's a product that these people like the bars are giving away for coasters or disposable certainly. Yeah. Like, and you it was cover really, their costs uh, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great idea. And like, so one, I was really impressed by like the marketing channels that he had created Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't exist beforehand. And then two, like I've never heard of a direct to consumer business at such a young stage, sort of having the ability to spend so much money on brand marketing. Usually like you have one marketing budget and you know, you spend some on brand and some on performance, but in reality you have like these numbers that you have to hit. Yeah. And he's like, look, this is how we do it. And like, we have to invest in brand if we want to be around 20 years later. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a good point. Yeah, it's a great point. I feel like Away did that. I feel like yeah. Allbirds did that as yeah. well. I just don't know. Like, I, Native never did that. We never spent yeah. one penny on brand. Then I look back on things and I'm like, okay, what is right and what is wrong? Like, yeah. uh, Outdoor wow. Voices has certainly spent a ton on brand yeah. and has like, struggled to find an exit and struggled to sort of maintain its valuation. Away seems like it's going to struggle as well as a result of COVID. Maybe not necessarily, but like, you know, spending a lot on brand and not necessarily enough, like as much on performance. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, you know what? Like all these brands that I really like, Casper has spent a ton on brand. Like all these beautiful out of home ads, mm-hmm. like beautiful imagery. I see their TV commercials and I'm like, did you, did you hire like Vincent Van Gogh to like create <laughs> yeah. this ad? This is fucking fantastic. Like uh, I want to free, freeze this ad, print it out, and hang it on yeah. my wall yeah. as like art. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, but then you have a hundred million dollar valuation having raised four hundred million dollars. Yeah. Are they right to be doing this? What, like, what is the outcome here? Yeah, I mean. It'll be an interesting case study in 15 years to look back on it and like really look at yeah. what mattered. I mean, just from how I've seen Native, you build your brand equity on the back of your working media dollars. And yeah, you guys simplified the messaging a lot, which helped. That's why like Black Wolf Nation does well as a company. The messaging is just simplified. Yeah. Um, at Hint, we did the same thing. But also, to some extent, a lot of these products provide convenience and an actual function. They're also consumable, which I think matters less than function, but they're very functional products and they have functional benefits to the consumer. Yeah. And so as a result, like, like the, I think you have to work dollars. a little less on the brand side, Gotcha. because if you can show them the yeah. outcomes or the benefits of the outcomes, then you just have a yeah. stickier brand. But that said, yeah, I also don't think like, there's one path to doing it that's applicable to everybody or or a right path. Yeah. Yeah. Because also, quite frankly, I would also bet money that some of these companies that spend a lot on brand probably tried to do what you were doing at Native, but just didn't have the skill set to actually execute it. And so their pivot was to whatever they ended up doing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's really hard to build a performance-based company that has $500 million in revenue. I think the only yeah. way to do that is once you start investing in brand. Yeah. But I'm not sure like brand marketing can get you to a $500 million company. I'm just not sure it can get you to a $50 million company. That's the crazy yeah. part. Yeah. Like I think you need like some of that performance in order to like almost like an airplane, right? Like you need yeah. to some and you create that ripple. And once yeah. you're out there. 
Yeah, exactly. It's crazy to think about what'll happen in this community. You know, I think about Harry's and the Edgewell, uh, like the Edgewell thing, and the FTC sort of saying, "Yeah, this isn't going to happen." I don't know what Harry's does now. Like, yeah, P and G certainly can't acquire them. They're going to have another antitrust problem, and P and G knows that, and Harry's knows that. I don't know how Billy feels because Billy's supposed to be acquired by P and G. You know, I, I don't know in the next few months or you know, yeah, that, that was supposed close. to start when we were boxing in New York. That was a long time ago. That deal was supposed to, yeah, that deal, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 that's right. I, I wonder what Harry's, if I were like Jeff or Andy at Harry's, I'd be like, you know, I built this amazing brand. Somebody else agreed to pay $1.4 billion for it. And now I can't get this done. Mm-hmm. Like what happened? Like what is going on in this world? I know it must be crazy. Like if Sprint and T-Mobile can merge and so that there's only three phone carriers, uh, United can merge with Continental and Delta with Northwest. Why can't my DTC company sell to a strategic? <laughs> I'm a direct-to-consumer new company that has launched in the last five years and you're saying yeah. there's an antitrust concern here? That's really blows my mind. It sucks and it's also a compliment. Yeah, it, it's certainly a compliment and I respect their business immensely. I yeah. think like, you know, our lives, both yours and mine, were made so much easier by virtue of the fact that like Andy Dunn and mm-hmm. Jeff and Andy from Harry's sort of paved this path for us. Yeah. Like, you know, Andy's like, we're going to build a direct-to-consumer business online. And everyone's like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, we're going to spend a bunch of money marketing and didn't know how to spend it well and built, you know, pop-up shops that other people are copying. Mm-hmm. And the Harry's guys are like, yeah, we're going to take this direct-to-consumer business and we're going to launch it into Target and it's going to be successful there. Yeah. When it came to Native, I was like, great, I know exactly what to do. <laughs> build a direct-to-consumer business like that Andy did. And then I'm going to launch into Target like that Andy did. Yeah. Uh, and like, you know, Target was like, yeah, we know why this is – look, we didn't have to convince Target. You know, yeah. Target was like, yeah, we know why this is a good deal. Right. Um, Harry's has been taking a ton of market share. And, you know, Native is now 12% of the deodorant sales at Target or 13%. Awesome. Yeah. Sells over a million dollars a week there. And I'm just like, we're walking in the footsteps of like giants. Yeah. Um, And like, unfortunately, like Andy Dunn didn't have the best outcome at Bonobos. I think the outcome for Harry's is too early to tell now. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it's certainly made our lives a lot easier. Oh, totally. I think like one thing that always gets lost, even back to those press pieces slamming the founders, one thing that always gets lost is like a lot of these people paved the way or created these movements, which is something to be appreciative of. And, um, like you said, it allows us to have a job. Yeah, yeah. I really think that like 60% of this industry is like building your business and 40% is getting the timing right. Yeah. Like Outdoor Voices was a hot brand, brought in Mickey from like J. Crew as yep. the chairman, brought in somebody from like Nike that was like president or something. They just didn't get the timing right of like when to find a home for that business. Yeah. And um, same thing with Casper, right? Like a fantastic brand absolute brand geniuses that created that Mm -hmm. and like great operators as well first month that they launched they had a million dollars in revenue they were sending out air mattresses because they couldn't fulfill their orders yeah so they're like we're going to send you this air mattress until we can get you a casper mattress a sort of pioneered out of home ads particularly in new york like i don't remember seeing subway ads until i saw casper ads. and then i was like shit all direct consumer businesses are now doing this and like just didn't find a home at the right time for that business yeah it's crazy on that note, I know you committed to some ads this summer. What happens to those buys? Do you know? Yeah. So Native had sort of agreed to do some subway ads in New York. Deodorant sales pick up in like, you know, during the summer because yeah. it's warmer out. And totally. all of a sudden you think more about sweating and, you know, you're outside as opposed to when in, in New York it's, you know, 12 degrees, you're sweating mm-hmm. less, you're walking, the, like, you know, you're walking less. 
uh, we wanted to buy some out of home ads and like they were pushing for i don't remember exactly what time they were pushing for and you know at the time i was still a native and i pushed for the summer which is now the worst time ever to run a subway <laughs> ad because the subway ridership is down yeah. probably 90%. Yeah. And so we're trying to like push them out a little bit so that we can still get some traffic. Yeah. You know, you agree to like a, a price and you're like, okay, this is what the CPM backs out to based on right. the number of riders that the subway has. And then, but you don't agree to a CPM price. You know, you don't say, okay, you're right, going to have this right, many riders, right. so I'll pay X number of dollars. Yep. You say, this is the price based on your historic traffic. And that, like, I had terrible timing there. I certainly couldn't foresee it, but like just well, yeah. I mean, it's so nothing you could have. Those ads. Yeah, it's nothing you could have predicted. I was pretty excited though. I was super excited too because I, I wanted to run all these like fun ads that would say like "What stinks down here?" Uh, <laughs> not you if you use native deodorant. And the subway guys were like, you have to be careful because you can't make fun of the subway while you're running these ads. You have to buy the inventory from us. You can't like be an asshole to us. Yeah. And, like we're not going to let that happen. Yeah, you, know? yeah. you can't be like, this place is a shithole. Use native deodorant. <laughs> Avoid the rats. Yeah. Use native deodorant. Like exactly. they would not have been cool with that. But I think the, what stinks, not you use native deodorant. Like I think that would have been okay with them. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is crazy how like ad inventory has sort of changed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I talk to people who are advertising on Facebook these days, they're just like prices are down substantially. Like CPMs yeah. are down because the Marriott's and United's and um, Toyota's of the world just aren't advertising on there now. Yeah. When all the big agencies pulled out, then all the really savvy people like us went in and started creating these campaigns. And the yeah. overall inventory got super cheap. Yeah, I remember like in 2017, Mark Pritchard, who's the chief brand officer at P&G, like went on the Wall Street Journal and he's like, we're cutting our Facebook ad spend by $100 million because Facebook just doesn't provide the return on investment that it should. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there like, this is pre-acquisition. I was like, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. You have no idea what you're missing. It's fantastic out here if you're <laughs> like, you know, if you're savvy about running Facebook ads. So like, yeah. uh, you're right. It is bad. It is bad. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. Stop spending. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'll go ahead and increase my spend. Yeah. Like that's what happens in auction-based uh, platforms. Totally. If somebody was going to start, uh, you know, I, I know we're running over time already. If someone's going to start a new business today, what is the best way to learn about digital advertising? I, you know, I, t- I spoke to Kara earlier this week and she was like, we ran a Super Bowl commercial mm-hmm. and it cost us under a million dollars to run that Super Bowl commercial. I was like, well, when you said you focus mostly on performance ads, I was like, okay, it sounds like that's changed now. Yeah. Super Bowl commercials are rarely performance. So it's also interesting to hear that it just costs under a million dollars. Yeah. Um, you've run acquisition in a bunch of companies. You're advising a bunch of companies when it comes to acquisition. Mm-hmm. You've run your fair share of Facebook ads. Certainly admire your like expertise there. What's the first step that somebody should do if they're cold and they're working at, I don't know, Johnson and Johnson, or they're working at, uh, they're like a paralegal somewhere and they want to run this direct to consumer business. Where should they go to learn about direct to consumer advertising or should they text you? Yeah. Yeah. You can definitely text me. I had always tried to find like whether it was that one site that was really good at educating you or like that one course or whatever, but there, it just doesn't exist. And also this world changes so fast that there's really yeah. nothing that can constantly keep up. I found that for me, the best tool is like, I just started building a group of people that I constantly talk to, you know, whether it's like, these are people, most of them initially were just actual like acquisition people. So people like the head of marketing at like third love or Madison Reed or some of these like big D to C brands. Yeah. And then I just started figuring out that I could use Twitter to network. Um, now, like I'll talk to people who are running tens of millions of dollars of ads all the way to people who are, you know, doing a thousand dollars a month in sales and they're really proud of it. 
but I, it's easy for me to just kind of learn through seeing what other people are doing. And then the other thing I'll do is just, you know, like stock the really, really good brands and see exactly how they do it, whether it's their looking at their creative, you know, there's things you pick up. Like if you go to yeah, probably even native, if you, if you go to natives, like Facebook ads library, if 80% of the creative looks the same, that's the creative that's doing really good. And so you just like, 100%. you do that. Um, I constantly have a list where I'll go through, you know, the top like 50 or 60 brands and just see uh, what are all their landing pages looking like now. If I identify similarities, yeah. it's because it works. You know, I just, I learn by observation. I like looking at what other people are doing and then figuring out the why and then basically taking the why and trying to make that with my own version. Yeah, that's a great point. I think like, you know, someone made fun of us for like uh, having a landing page that looked like Harry's. Mm. And I was like, you're using this as like an insult. And I picked up what you said and put it on myself as a badge. I was like yeah. a compliment. I'm yeah. like, thank you. We didn't spend <laughs> yeah. the money to do it, but we looked at other people and we emulated yeah. their and, best practices. And, you know, if you look at like a lot of these brands that spend millions of dollars a month, like we don't have to do that testing. They've done the testing for us. We, yeah. we just have yeah, to sure. see what they've come out with. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of like work smarter, not harder. So agree with uh, like sort of looking at competitors or actually best in class uh, sites to see what they're doing really well. Yeah. When you said you develop like a network of people on Twitter and presumably Slack and communicate with them and some of them are spending, you know, $1,000 and some of them are spending $10 million a year on Facebook ads. Yeah. How does that network help you? It helps me in a few different ways. So like if I know that, for example, I'm helping out a telemedicine brand, um, you know, onboard new customers and a part of their customer journey requires like going through insurance. Then I have a friend who runs marketing at another telemedicine brand for women where they have that whole kind of funnel and they've gone through that whole process. So for me, it can be yeah. as easy as texting him and asking a question. In other cases, it could be like, I needed a Shopify developer two months ago. And so I had asked a couple friends and right away they were just like, oh yeah, here, use this guy. He's the best. And um, yeah, I usually just learn that way. I'm a big like questions person. My theory initially, I think the reason that it kicked off was because I don't really have a formal education in anything. And so, and I also wasn't a big reader. So my thought process was basically like, instead of, <laughs> instead of going to uh, like books and instead of going to college, if I just surround myself with the people who write these books and I get the information first, then I should be in a good enough position. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There's two things I'd say. Look, I have a formal education and I can tell you I like never use it on a single day <laughs> unless someone's saying something like l requiring me to do something that yeah, I don't Yeah, you're a Harvard do, lawyer. I'm like, I'm a lawyer and yeah. uh, no, I don't have to do this. <laughs> I'm not your slave. Yeah. I think that's the only time I use it. You were talking about networks. In San Francisco, what I started doing when we were growing native and we were really small is I started hosting like a, this e-commerce brunch. Oh, so yeah. So like, like one Sunday a month, I would get like um, 10 people who were all in e-commerce into a room and we would talk about like, you know, the problems that we were having from like an operations perspective, a, a personnel mm -hmm. perspective, and really a marketing perspective. Yeah. I was like, what is working from you, for you guys on a marketing perspective? Like, where are you spending money? Network really helped me understand the shift from like desktop to mobile, mm -hmm. from mobile static images to mobile video, landing pages, colors that would work, how important creative was versus headline, yeah. you know, how important the, the display image was before it started a video, like all that kind of stuff. 
aside from the fact that it was really like easy to voice my concerns to other founders who came to the brunch, it was super inspirational. I remember like coming out of those brunches being like, it's Sunday at 2 p.m. I have nine hours of work to do yeah. today because all of these guys had such good ideas. I need to go and start executing some of them. Yeah. Myself, Scott Swanson, who I don't think you've met, but he actually used to work at The Hustle. Uh, me, Scott, the head of marketing at Third Love, head of marketing at Madison Reed, and Mike Dubois when he was at Stitch Fix. Yeah. We would all get lunch once a month. And sometimes we would come out of these meetings and we all had pretty much the same customer, but we were not competing. So it was great. And um, we would come out of these meetings and Scott and I would take like an idea that we discussed over lunch and it would make us an extra hundred grand the next weekend. Yeah. But it totally did help with like third love and Madison Reed um, did a ton in podcasts and TV. So like we learned a lot about that before we stepped into that. Um, It helped us with figuring out things like the right agencies, you know, who are the right buyers. um, Yeah. All the way down to like, we're trying to hire a, head of retention, how do we go about hiring that? Or, you know, we have this issue on the team where this person thinks they're supposed to be doing email and affiliate, but like random issues. But it helps to have that group where the chances of one of them having already dealt with that issue is pretty high. Yeah, that's a great point. It's like your personal like Yelp, where you have a bunch of people who have like had some experiences. And it's just like brainstorming in a way where sometimes you need to get other people's perspective who are doing the same thing you're doing, although it's in a different industry to really open up your eyes. Yeah. For me, we had Eric who runs Nectar Mattresses, or Mm -hmm. it's called like Nectar, I guess. I saw his business go from like $0 to north of $200 million. And I was just like, what the fuck is going on over there? Like every month we'd come and I'd be like, what the fuck? How is your growth that huge? Yeah. And it was really helpful. So when I was looking at marketing perspective, I'd go to him. And then when I, you know, need to discuss a small team issue, I talked to the guys at Vinebox or Japan Crate mm. or somebody else who was there that was a small, but like sort of um, growing, like struggling well and like had a lot of insight. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think those networks are like underappreciated. They're like totally. sort of. Um, it's a total advantage too. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. You know, you were talking about how you guys had different businesses, but how like certain things would work. There needs to be a private equity firm that sort of buys up a bunch of these businesses and spreads like everyone's biggest cost or one of their biggest costs is certainly customer acquisition. Mm-hmm. It's got to be in the top five or probably the top oh, two definitely, yeah. uh, costs. Yeah. You know, someone needs to spread this around because you're right. The, like the customer who's a native customer is probably a hint customer. Totally. And the customer who's a hint customer is probably an outdoor voices customer. Mm-hmm. And we're all paying Facebook to sort of like acquire these customers as opposed to saying, you know what, we have this one email address that would probably apply to all three of us. Mm -hmm. Why don't we try and share this resource? Yeah, I've thought so much about this. There was actually a company that I think the furthest it got as like, um, as us operators were trying to do that, the furthest it ever got was like sharing Facebook audiences, like lookalikes among swapping lookalikes among brands. But everybody got super... Well, one, people got really protective about their email list, especially if it was a big list. Everybody was really cautious. And then secondly, anything from like a bigger company that had, I would say like more than 50 people, they naturally had like a chief technology or chief privacy or chief legal. And that's where it gets really tough. Yeah. It is tough. But if somebody could figure that out, or you know, it's another one. I think I'd sent you a screenshot one time, but it's if you could develop a Shopify app, the hustle is like the perfect audience for this. A Shopify app that imagine if like I was at Hint and you were at Native and it was one landing page, you check out on the landing page and it pushes the order out to both Hint and Native. So on the back end it gets fulfilled like a normal order. And on the front end, the customer pays once, 
puts their information in once and it basically goes out to two stores rather than checking out on my site and I send you an Excel sheet or vice versa. You're saying so like there'd be one checkout, like one website that sells both of our products? Yeah, it could be that, but it's more so like the reason a lot of people don't do things like acquisition collabs is because it's like, well, who owns that customer technically? Is it on my store that they check out or your store? And then if it's, yeah, gotcha. if it's just another site like Amazon, then Amazon owns it. So in this case, yeah. everybody wins. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the first step to getting there is actually like the worst step, which is like the private equity company coming in and buying five yeah. of these businesses and start sharing. Like, cause once they prove that, hey, this kind of stuff works and we can bring your marketing costs down 35% and mm -hmm. that's your biggest P&L, like that's the biggest line item you have in terms of expenses. Now all of a sudden everyone's going to be like, well, this like this company's got a competitive advantage, yeah, and we have to figure that out. I think there are certain companies that are trying. I would be surprised if Atomic and like Hims and Hers don't share that kind of stuff, yeah. And I'd be surprised if like um, the new Gin Lane isn't trying to do that as well, yeah. It is like uh, no one has done it well, and like yeah, a lot of people are attempting it. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of people attempting it. Like uh, back when Facebook would share interests with you, like I'd look at natives oh, in audience yeah. and I'd be like, what are the other things you like? And I'm yeah. like, great, all of these other, like 60% of our customers also liked Honest. Yeah, that's how I would find a lot of like media partnerships. We saw that, I think the yeah, first time I yeah. ever did it, I was, it was like the skim was in the top five and I was like, all right, we're running placements yeah, that's with the right. skim. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah. And like, I was just like, we have the exact same audience. And we but like the Honest Co, Honest Co and Native had the same audience. And we have to, each of us have to acquire our own customers independently. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. It's just the only, like, it is what it is right now, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. Nick, really appreciate your time. We're way over already. Yeah, that was fun. So thanks so much for uh, being on this episode. If people want to follow you, if they want to follow your, like, you know, the community that you've created, uh, where should they text you? Where should they follow you on Twitter? <laughs> You can text me at 917-905-2340, or you can follow me and tweet me on Twitter at Mr. Sharma. Fantastic. Nick, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate this. I always love chatting with you. I feel like yeah, you and I have the same perspective of like performance marketing of direct-to-consumer businesses. Yeah. And there isn't all this like hoopla bullshit. Of <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, you know, you don't put yourself out there like you're royalty. You're like, look, I'm a commoner fighting the good fight. Exactly. And it makes it a lot easier to, uh, to chat with you. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Of course. Hey guys, that's a wrap for this episode of the Exit Strategy Podcast. We'll be back next Thursday with another new episode. And if you like this podcast, visit thehustle.co to subscribe to The Hustle, a daily email that will give you the business news you need to start your day. Yeah.